The first reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 2. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I, and the children of God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Our Gospel reading is from the second chapter of St. Matthew, and reading from verse 13. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my sons. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learnt from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. 
This is the gospel of the Lord. May I speak in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know if you saw uh, in the Times uh, this week an article um, written by uh, an atheist journalist whose name escaped me, and in the great Christmas clear-out, I couldn't find the copy of the Times relevant to check on which journalist it was. But he uh, wrote an article of stinging rebuke of the leaders of the Church of England. The Archbishop of Canterbury in particular, Justin Welby, was taken to task for his Christmas sermon for preaching about poverty and food banks. And our bishop, uh, John, who had had an article in the Times the day before, was criticized for comparing the Christmas story to the life of Pi, the film and book of the life of Pi. Has everybody seen or read The Life of Pi? Does it mean anything to any of you? Some of you. Um, uh, In his article, um, John recalled the story of Pi. Pi is a boy traveling from uh, India to America with with um, all the creatures from their zoo in India. And there's a shipwreck and... uh, a remarkable survival story takes place. uh, And uh, much later, after Pi has survived the shipwreck, he is asked by insurance investigators whether the story we've seen in the life of Pi, which is a miraculous story concerning how uh, a tiger that ends up on his boat becomes his friend and together they survive, whether this is the true story or whether he has made that up wanting us to believe in this miraculous rescue, and whether it really happened was very different. And Pai tells him, well, would you like another story? And he tells a story of cannibalism and uh, awful human misery and so on, ending up with survival rather than rescue. And he says to the insurance claimers, uh, well, which story do you prefer? Which one would you rather believe? Uh, As if truth doesn't matter. And the journalist, writing uh, critically of Bishop John, uh, thought that this was inadequate and called upon church leaders to make a rational case for belief. It's not just enough to tell the Christmas story and say to people, well, it's a nice story, believe it if you wish. It's not enough to do that. Uh, It's not enough, he wrote, to dismiss Dawkins and co., for overstating their case, which undoubtedly they do, and answer them only with story rather than with rational defense of Christianity. And, of course, he had a a point. He was a frustrated atheist. He said, I I would love... He'd he'd been to a carol service. He'd been to a crib service with his children. And he said that, you know, most people who go to crib services and carol services don't actually believe it, but they like the story, and they like to rehearse the story. But I want, he said, I want to be given some reasons for believing. And Christian apologetics, of course, as advocated and practiced at the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics down the road, for instance, is vital. It is true that, and, and perhaps this journalist had missed it, that the likes of 
Alistair McGrath and John Lennox and Michael Ramsden from Ocker itself, many others, debate publicly and successfully with the new atheists and do give a rational defense for Christianity. It can be rationally defended. But I also thought that in the article he was a bit unfair on Justin and John because in advocating story, surely there is a sense in which they are being faithful to biblical methodology. There's a sense in which Justin is saying when he talks about the need for Christians to do something about poverty and support food banks and credit unions and so on. He's he's saying in a sense that the story of how we Christians behave, how we actually live our lives, will validate Christian truth. The most The strongest argument in favor of Christianity, surely, is the changed life of the believer. If we are not for the poor, for justice and a better world, we will not be taken seriously. And I think that John Pritchard's point about story was the point of an evangelist rather than an apologist. He wanted the readers of his article in the Times to make a faith choice. That's what he was putting before the readers. Just as in the life of Pi, the insurance investigators are given a choice as to which story they would prefer. And surely, all evangelism, all of us who have decided to put our trust in Christ, at some stage made a faith choice to decide to believe that, this story, to believe this story of the nativity. All evangelism has that appeal in it. Will you have this Jesus? Will you have this baby of Bethlehem? Will you have this story? Will you have this person as your Lord and Savior? Will, if, will you, if you like, make uh, this story, the story of Jesus, your story, It seems to me that that's a perfectly legitimate challenge. And if he had wanted wanted to, Bishop John could have written an article with a rational defense of belief in God, the historicity of the nativity stories. But he was writing evangelistically, challenging the reader to buy into the story of the baby of Bethlehem. Now, two weeks ago, I drew attention at the 8 o'clock service to the to the two traditions of the nativity story. There are these two stories, the Luke story and the Matthew story, with which we're so familiar. The shepherds in Luke, the wise men in Matthew, and so on. And the details of what happened after Jesus was born, after the events of the nativity, are also different. Not, I I think, in any sense in conflict, just two traditions, two different sources of information. Both agree about major things. For instance, both agree that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, out of Mary, as they say in horse racing circles, by the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, they both agree, effectively took responsibility for Jesus as his own son, therefore avoiding scandal. Both agree that they ended up in Nazareth, uh, where Jesus grew up and was known as a Galilean. But there are significant differences too and important differences in the story which help us to understand a little bit who Jesus is and perhaps help us to believe in Jesus. 
Luke tells us uh, what happened immediately Jesus was born. The presentation of the temple after eight, at the temple after eight days, the circumcision, the intervention of Simeon and Anna, leading, of course, to the uh, pronunciation of the Nunc Dimittis, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. He doesn't tell us, uh, perhaps he did not know, about the flight to Egypt. He doesn't tell us about the massacre of the innocents. Perhaps those things both happened sometime later. No doubt, after such a traumatic experience, Joseph thought that Mary needed some time to recover in Bethlehem before traveling north once again. Matthew, however, writing from a Jewish, not a Gentile perspective, is anxious to make his readers locate the incarnation in the context of the story of salvation history. This is Matthew's principal aim, to make it clear to his Jewish readers that the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of all their expectation. At the evening service this evening, I'm showing a a short film that actually someone in in Oxford from Magdalen Road Church made this winter called Someone is Coming. It's a, an animation, really, of the, of the Bible story leading from creation through to the incarnation, demonstrating how the story makes sense only in the context of incarnation. Uh, and um, it's rather, rather well done, in my opinion, and uh, I shall show it this evening, not so easy to show it at 8 o'clock this morning. In, in Matthew chapter 2 here, that uh, was read for us, we see that the, the, the evangelist Matthew reinforces in his story the idea of fulfillment, fulfillment of what the, uh, what the original story promised would happen, if you like. And you, you, we, have to decide whether we're going to believe that story or not, whether we're going to buy into that story. So we have the journey of the Holy Family from Bethlehem to Egypt to escape the massacre of the innocents, and then, of course, to Nazareth. And he compares that very deliberately by quoting from Hosea, chapter 11. He, uh, he deliberately connects the coming of the Messiah from Egypt to Nazareth to the Exodus itself. So the exodus becomes a type, an example of salvation, the rescue of the, of the people of Israel from Egypt, from slavery, is a picture for us, a deliberate picture in the story of the great salvation from sin that Jesus is to win for us on the cross. Matthew deliberately makes that connection and powerfully makes it. And the massacre of the innocents is compared to the sacking of Jerusalem, described by Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. These are Jeremiah's words about the uh, attack upon Jerusalem and the beginning of the exile. Adapted by Matthew to talk about uh, the great return from exile, that is now about to happen in Jesus. The great return from exile in alienation, not just from the land, but from God. And Matthew wants his readers to understand that Jesus is bringing us home. Here is the culmination of the story. 
great suffering precedes the fulfillment of the promises that God has made. Here is the Messiah bringing rescue and salvation to the world. So we conclude, perhaps just to, to, to encourage uh, us to believe in the story more and more, that it has coherence, it has purpose. These are not just random traditions that Luke and Matthew have put together. They have deliberately written the story in such a way, just as the life of Pi was written in a certain way, to help people to choose where you want to live your life, what story you want to live in. Do you want to live in the great salvation story of God, who from the beginning of time has intended to have a people who will be his own and has made that possible by sending Jesus into the world to reconcile us to God? and to show us a better way to live. So God has always known what he is doing, and God's rescuer is for the whole world, including us.